What's up, Harry? Hi, Greg. How are you? Good, man. How are you? I'm quality, thank you. Hello, my name is Harry Robinson, and this is the All Out Attack podcast. We've had our share of fires and everything, and oh god, know, yeah, everything in the country's been crazy for you know six months, as you know. But uh, as far as it affects my life, everything's pretty easy going. My guest today is former LAPD detective Greg Caving, the man responsible for solving the unsolved murders of Tupac Shakur and Biggie Smalls, two of the most influential music artists of the 90s, when their cases were reopened almost a decade after each of their deaths. Tupac was killed in a drive-by shooting after a brawl following a Mike Tyson fight in Las Vegas in September 1996. Shakur was killed by Orlando Anderson, a member of the Southside Crips gang who was driven by his uncle, a gangster named Keefe D. Biggie Smalls was also killed in a drive-by shooting six months after Tupac's death outside the Peterson Automotive Museum in LA by a gang member named Wardell Pucci Faust. According to Greg, the murder was solicited by Tupac's friend and owner of Death Row Records, Shug Knight. You've had to do a lot of interviews on the topic. Yeah, I've done I've done quite a few. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll try and make this one entertaining for you at least. Or is it worthwhile getting on Zoom for? Almost a quarter of a century after the murders, and a decade after the cases were solved, Greg Cading still maintains that the blood of these monumental rap artists is stained on the hands of their record producers. I'm here to pick the brains of the man who provided closure for so many. I hope you enjoy. I'll, I'll just jump into it then. For, you know, for... Uh, a bit of context. So you joined the police force in the eighties, didn't you? Or the- yeah, the mid eighties. I started in late eighty five, um, nineteen eighty six, thereabouts. In the was it the southern? It was a police force in Southern California before you moved to the LAPD. Is that right? Right. I, I worked for the Orange County Sheriff's Department for a few years before I went to LA. So, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. What drew you to the police force? I don't know. Looking back, I just, I just was looking for a good job, something with some security, and I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I didn't grow up thinking that, hey, I'm, you know, I'm going to be a cop someday. I was, I, I never felt like that. But as I got older, when I was like 20 years old, I thought, man, I just, I need to go find a good job. And I had a friend whose dad was a lieutenant on the sheriff's department, and I had, you know, started to have discussions with him, and he was encouraging me to apply, so I did. And, the rest is history yeah um so you're obviously going through the 90s you're in uh the the lapd throughout the 90s and you're essentially there whilst there are gangs in compton and this east coast west coast you know heated rap feuds going on With yeah that, i mean uh, oh sorry carry rap, on. yeah the rap feud was really not never an east coast west coast rap feud it was mm-hmm. just one label from the East Coast and one label from the West Coast. So it wasn't, you know, East versus West. It was just these two labels that happened to be from the two different coasts. Yeah, well, it was perpetrated by the media. A different, yeah. it's, a, it's a nice narrative, isn't it? Um, do, how, what was the kind of feeling uh, around the police force at that time? Because obviously you, you know, you have songs by NWA, you know, kind of advocating 
uh, disdain towards the police. How was the feeling towards the kind of uh, community and ethos of gangster rap around that time within the police force? Well, clearly anything that promotes, you know, violence, anything that promotes hatred, you know, whether you're a cop or not, is something that we should all be concerned about. And so, you know, if you take the time to try to see things from the perspective of those individuals that were writing that song, you know, perhaps you can be a little bit understanding from their impressions. Um, but at the same time, you've got to recognize that, you know, gangs were a plague and still are a plague in the communities that they affect. You know, gang activity is a criminal activity and it affects a lot of innocent people. So to promote the idea that maybe gangs you know, shouldn't be targeted by cops is, it's ridiculous. Um, you know, so law enforcement has to meet its opposition um, in the streets. And that's what we do. We meet them in the streets. And if there's, those forces are going to collide. If you're trying to enforce the law, and keep communities safe, you're going to collide with that element that is breaking the law and plaguing the community with violence. Mm -hmm. so, you know, it's gonna collide. And so I, you know, I would never advocate, regardless of how good the music is, for anything that is antisocial. That makes sense. Obviously, fast forward a bit to, to 96 and, and Tupac is uh, made the prominent uh, Californian uh figureheads obviously not made to dinner in that jurisdiction what was the kind of feel or was there any prominent feel at all uh within the police when such a big figurehead like that is killed in a gang-related activity no not at all i mean you gotta keep law enforcement isn't necessarily affected by some rap music star any kind of music celebrity that mm -hmm. is killed um in a different jurisdiction so with the lapd Tupac's box murder had nothing to do with things happening in los angeles that we knew about you know on the surface and so you don't really pay much attention to it it's just unfortunate that somebody got killed he happened to be a rapper and it is what it is it's not like you know the department went into mourning over it fast forward to 2006 and uh there's a lawsuit on um the city of los angeles is that right regarding the biggest yeah. smalls murder biggie got killed in 1997 yeah in Los yeah Angeles. uh and then the lawsuit happens which uh encourages this task force to be implemented that you're involved in yeah um, yeah but nine years later you know talk nine years after yeah, yeah. murder T talk me through how this task force was uh banded then and the kind of feel around the police force that i mean the lapd was essentially oh can you still hear me greg sorry about that yeah yeah, yeah sorry you that thing came up um talk me through the the kind of feel around the lapd at that time because obviously i mean with a lawsuit like that the lapd is getting painted with quite a, a grim brush in the media and i imagine yeah so you know there had been uh theories posed um, about potentially an LAPD officer named David Mack being involved in Biggie's murder. So that was investigated several times by several different departments, including the FBI. But ultimately, they continued to pursue this lawsuit, they being Valletta Wallace, Biggie's mom, and then his estranged wife, um, Faith, his widow. 
So they were pursuing this theory and it kind of went in and out of the court system. And then eventually they just said, hey, let's, it's a cold case. Let's get some new investigators to look into it. And then I was recruited as one of those investigators. And then I realized the best thing for us to do was to federalize the case, to bring in the U.S. Attorney's Office and the FBI and everybody else in order to get a super comprehensive uh, approach to this. And so we recruited guys that knew a lot about gangster rap, guys that were you know, understood some of the nuances of the African-American community and the nuances of uh, that music culture. Mm-hmm. So we just brought in everybody that we could that we thought could be experts. We wanted the DEA because we knew there was potentially going to be some drug components. We brought in um, ATF because we knew there was going to be some firearm components. And we just brought in a collective group of experts in order to approach the investigation. How did, how long did it take before the uh, Biggie Smalls cold case turned into looking into the murder of Tupac? Well, everybody from the day that Biggie was murdered, there was Mm -hmm. always speculation that it was somehow related back to Tupac's murder six months earlier. So there was always that investigative kind of insight that these were probably linked. So, you know, the moment we started working on Biggie's case, we were already aware of Tupac's case and where they intersected. You know, we knew common denominators between the two cases and people that were, you know, ultimately... Um, the most important person being a guy named Keefe D, Dwayne Davis, who was a Southside Crip, because he was both in Las Vegas the night that uh, um, Tupac was killed. And in fact, it was his nephew that was attacked by Tupac prior to the shooting. And then we also knew that this same Keefe D was at the Peterson Autumn Museum the night that Biggie was killed. So he, he was a common denominator between the two investigations. I mean, Keefe D is the almost the center point of your whole uh kind of investigation if that's fair to say uh or at least his his uh your interviews with him were a big breaking point uh for yeah so for context how did it come about that you uh went to interview keefe d well, we wanted to speak with him, and we knew that he was probably not going to be very cooperative you know why would he um, you know, he's a gang member and he's, you know, I think at the time he might have been out on probation, but um, we knew that he was not going to just willingly walk into the police station someday and confess to his involvement in any crime. So we figured out the best thing to do would be kind of corner him, put him into a position where it would be in his best interest to sit down and talk with us. So that's what we did. We put together a drug investigation against him, discovered what he was doing, which was trafficking and PCP and cocaine and we built a case against him so that uh, he would be cornered and that's what we did and he agreed at, at that point to cooperate and sit down and answer all of our questions. Do you think obviously I mean I know you can't speak for Keefe D himself because um, Keefe D obviously went on to talk about how his nephew Orlando Anderson is the person that shot Tupac. Mm-hmm. Uh, was there any um, kind of tentativeness on, on Keefe D's side for the fact that he's a, a, a long-standing gang member who is actively cooperating with the LAPD? Oh, of course. You know, that would have been a big concern for him. He would have you know, been, he doesn't want to be outed as an informant and he doesn't want to be outed as somebody who's 
um, sitting down and, 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 and exposing crimes to the police department. So of course there was apprehension on his part. Um, so what does, obviously you're building this case, uh, going into the Keefe D talks, the numerous talks that you had with Keefe D. What breakthrough information did he fully disclose to you and your partner? Well, two things. And so far as his involvement in the Biggie case, he denied any involvement in Biggie's murder, but he did say that he was involved in Tupac's murder and that he was there when Tupac was shot. In fact, he had provided the gun that was used to kill Tupac. He had it in his possession and he gave it to his nephew who was in the back seat who leaned out the window and shot Tupac. So he directly implicated himself in the murder, but he gave the background of, of, uh, the, the conflict and animosity that was going on between the, the two groups and provided more context um, for, the, for the murder. So he, he confessed you know, directly to what had taken place and then that confession was corroborated by all the known evidence in the case. So we knew that it was a valid confession. Why do you think that Keefe D perhaps didn't take the stereotypical gangster route of not cooperating at all and just taking the charges as or i mean obviously you can't really speak for keefe d but no i can't but i can speculate and that's because mm -hmm. he didn't want to go to prison for the rest of his life and this was his only way out that's fair enough uh obviously the 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 big link um or, or one that you uh make in your book murder rap uh is obviously the connection between um the the killers of a tupac and uh sean puffy combs and bad boy records could you explain the the connection because it was wasn't it through a drug dealer um eric zip his last name martin. Is. Yeah, yeah martin eric zip. Zip martin yeah yeah so he was an associate of both biggies and and uh sean combs you know he was a harlem drug dealer and um you know, he's out there in New York and he's affiliated with Mike Tyson and Sean Combs. And I think he was the godfather of, of Christopher Wallace's kid. And so he was, he knew these guys really well. You know, he ran in the same circles and he uh, was the one who actually gave TVD the gun out in Las Vegas after the fight between Tupac and Orlando. So he provided the gun and he was also the person who introduced TVD to Sean Combs. Um, when Keefe D and Zip were doing their drug trafficking all the way back into the early 90s. And so he says that, uh, you know, Sean Combs was really afraid of coming to LA because of all the animosity that was going on between him and Suge Knight. You gotta keep in mind that Suge Knight's bodyguard had already been shot and killed by Puffy Combs' bodyguard out in Atlanta, a guy named Jake Robles. So there's already blood on the ground, there's already conflict, and Sean Combs knows he's already gonna have problems to Los Angeles for any reason. So he understood that Suge Knight, who was always surrounded by these blood gang members, and he reaches out and gets Zip to introduce him to these Compton Crip gang members who could provide this kind of street security to protect him against from Suge Knight, protect him against Suge Knight and his goon squad. So that's how it all took place. They were just starting to deal with this whole thing from a street perspective, um, you know, uh, that old quote that, uh, you know, your enemy is my enemy's friend. Mm -hmm. That's all kind of what happened. Obviously, Puffy is very uh, scared of, of 
the affiliations in uh, Los Angeles. Do you think he knew what he was getting into by affiliating himself with, you know, such uh, prominent gang members? No, I don't. I don't think he understood um, how quickly these guys would take violence into their own hands um, under these under these circumstances. I don't think he fully appreciated um, what was likely to result as you know as a result of the conversations he had with Keefe D. I think it's probably his biggest regret in life was to have ever met Keefe D and then had conversations about killing the Tupac and Suge with Keefe D. Uh, it's probably his biggest regret. But saying that, I also realized he was desperately in fear of his own life and for good reason. He was targeted. Mm-hmm. And so he took, took matters into his own hands to try to protect himself. Unfortunately, it resulted in, you know, in Tupac's murder. In that regard, do you sympathize with him in, in any way? No, I don't. I mean, I don't sympathize with him. I just understand. I understand the, mm-hmm. the mentality and the desperation of why he did what he did, but I don't sympathize because there were better ways to handle it. You, know, you didn't need to go to the streets in order to take care of this situation. Um, you know, there were, there were better ways to handle it. Do you, uh, tracking back a bit, still relating to the Tupac case, obviously, Oh, no, sorry, uh, relating to the LAPD, you mentioned before about David Mack and the alleged uh, corruption charges, or oh, corruption allegations in the LAPD. How did that affect the police force as a whole in terms of that there were, there were numerous uh, police officers that were being accused of high-level corruption? Well, it always, you know, it sheds an unfavorable light on the whole department when one bad cop makes all bad, you know, all cops look bad because you know it's 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 the bad apple syndrome Mm -hmm. and so although you can have a you know um vast majority of hard-working honest cops it's just the story of one bad cop that shines an unfavorable light on everybody it's that way in all professions um that particularly it affects law enforcement so when allegations about david mack being involved in the murder of course that looked bad even though it turned out not to be true but David Mack was a crook. You know, mm. David Mack was, he was a bank robber. And that he was convicted of. And that in and of itself did tremendous damage to the reputation of the LAPD. And every time a cop goes bad or one is exposed for corruption, it makes us all look bad. And nobody hates a bad cop more than a good cop. Oh, I can imagine. Um, so fast forward six months after Tupac's death to the case that, you were initially assigned to um for clarification did you did you solve tupac's case before making any strides into biggie's case or was it kind of in tandem no they were closely you know close proximity time wise but we got to we got to the resolution on tupac's murder first because we had met keefe dean interviewed him and then he exposed the truth about that murder and then shortly thereafter, we find a female associate of Suge Knight's who basically does the same thing. She sits down with us and explains her role in Biggie's murder, which was in direct retaliation for Tupac's murder. And so, you know, in short period of time, we solved both crimes, you know, for all practical intent and purpose. However, this is, you know, over 10 years after the fact. And we don't get to these resolutions till 2009. And those guys died in 96 and 97. So you know, years and years and years and years have gone by. 
that once we finally resolve the case based on these confessions, both the shooters are dead. There's not a whole lot you can do, practically speaking, as far as um, prosecuting anybody. So the cases just kind of settle in as these unfortunate unsolved cases from a, from an official perspective. When you're taking a cold case like that, is the idea of, of getting justice for the, the victims or the victims' families at the forefront of it, or is it just a, a job, a high-profile job? No, I mean, you want closure in the case. I mean, that's what you're being paid to do. That's what your job description is, is to go out and solve the crime. So that's what motivates you. But obviously the um, personal um, sympathetic components of the case, trying to solve it for their surviving family members and, and particularly for the moms, um, that drives you. That's a, that's, a, that's a motivating factor. But above and beyond that, or aside from that, you're doing it because it's your job. You, you're getting paid to do these things. And so you got to go out and put, put in your best effort. Do you feel it's that both cases are a, a closed book in the terms of that no justice was really, obviously by no fault of, of the police force or uh, no justice was really uh, handed out because both uh, shooters died, you know, years before the case was reopened? Mm -hmm. Well, I, I think that uh, Valetta Wallace's attorney put it best, she, you know, when he said, these are not unsolved cases, they're just unprosecuted cases. Mm -hmm. And that's how I feel about it. You know, they're solved for, you know, as far as I'm concerned, and but they're not prosecutable from any practical standpoint. However, then you have to ask yourself the question, what is justice? Is it only somebody that is prosecuted and sent to prison for their crimes? Or is there, other, is there other forms of justice? Now, keep in mind that both the guys that killed Tupac and Biggie were murdered on the streets in the same manner that they exacted murder on Tupac and Biggie. You know, they're shot and killed in the streets. And so is an eye for an eye justice? Is it, uh, is, those are questions I guess you have to ask yourself philosophically. You know, is for someone to be murdered in the streets, is that justice? when they have murdered somebody in cold blood themselves. I mean, I think that's a, a, a great metaphor for the whole situation in terms of how gangs and gang warfare has corrupted certain communities, especially mm. in America. Do you feel that with, with these musicians getting affiliated with gangs whilst this feud is going on, do you feel that something like this was inevitable, looking in hindsight? No, not inevitable. I mean, these were avoidable situations. Had one person taken the responsible role and, 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 and brought peace to this conflict, then both these guys would have still been alive. But instead, they fueled the fire of the conflict. And that what led to the, that's what led to the, uh, the demise of both rappers. Um, but had it just been one person who had been able to be in a position to say, listen, we need to squash this. I don't know what I've done to offend you. I apologize and let's make things right, instead of saying, you know, fuck you, you know, let's do this, which essentially is what happened. And that's, that's, that's why both of them are dead. It wasn't inevitable, it was avoidable. That makes complete sense. Um, going, going back to the chronology of it, because we haven't really covered uh, Biggie's case too much. So uh, the, the, the woman who came forward uh, was a, 
a partner of or a former partner of Shug Knights, wasn't she? Girlfriend, yeah, yeah. baby mama. Um, called Teresa Swan, or that's an alias of her. Yeah, an alias, yeah. Um, why did she come forward? She came forward the same reason that uh, PVD came forward. You know, we put her into a corner that she couldn't wiggle herself out of. So it was in her best interest. It was in her family's best interest to sit down and answer our questions. She didn't want to go back to jail. And going back to jail potentially meant her kids going into foster care. And when we presented her with that ultimatum, she decided that she would tell us what she knew. And, uh, and, and, she, and she did. She explained the chain of events that led to Biggie's murder. Was there much investigating going on after that had happened? Because it kind of explained a lot of loose ends. In the yeah, I mean, we continued to investigate. You know, with every answer, sometimes new questions are raised. And so we wanted to make sure we corroborated both of them and figured out whether or not these were valid confessions, which we did. And then uh, um, continued to try to pursue whatever possibility of a prosecution we could. But then it got shut down. Once the lawsuit against the LAPD was dropped, um, the LAPD made the determination that they weren't going to put any more time and resources into a case that they didn't think could be practically prosecuted. Do you wish you were able to follow up the case more? Oh, absolutely. I think there was still work to be done and we could have made some inroads, but it is what it is. You know. Obviously, Shug is the person that, um, that uh, called the hit, essentially, on, on Biggie uh, with a, a man called uh, Poochie. Mm -hmm. um, what do you think of Shug as a person? Because he has quite a, a, a domineering demeanour in the rap game. Like, well, in the music business and in the crime business. And obviously he's in prison at the moment. What, what are your thoughts on Shug Knight? Well, I don't know him personally. So I can't speak mm -hmm. about what he's like as a father. I can't speak about what he's like as a son or what he's like as a, uh, as a husband. I, uh, I can't speak on those things personally. I can only speak on them professionally based on the behaviour that he's exhibited throughout most of his adult you know, life, uh, which is antisocial and a lot of people dead as a result of a lot of manipulation that he caused and all the conflict. And so I can only judge him in that way. I judge him from the damage that he's done. And so from that, you know, I just, don't, I don't see that the guy's a good person. He certainly hasn't come out and expressed any remorse for his sins or expressed any remorse for his crimes. He's never apologized um, to Valetta Wallace for having her son killed. So, you know, you form your own judgment about what type of person that is. Do you see, obviously these are two um, huge moguls in the, uh, in the music business, um, both of which have connections to two of the high profile murders yeah, most high-profile murders in the music business. Uh, is that a worrying testament for kind of the absolute power that this kind of business brings? Or, Well, I think that history speaks for itself. It's not just these two guys. They're the most iconic because they're the most popular and renowned. But you just look at the history of violence that has taken place within the kind of gangster rap um, um, environment 
you know, there's a lot of rappers who have been killed and, uh, and a lot of people have gone to prison, you know, as a result of the violence that has taken place in that particular subset of, of music genre or that subset of urban culture. So, you know, the history is there for you to see yourself, you know, just type in dead rappers. It's not going to come up the way if you type in dead country music stars or dead opera singers or you know it, it doesn't they don't compare mm -hmm. there's this disproportionate number of guys who have been murdered um in that in that uh you know in that group well i mean even if you look in in modern times you have rappers like uh, uh nipsey hustle and uh xxx tentacion who've both been killed in drive-bys uh in the last couple of years do you think there'll ever be a, a cultural change or a cultural shift in that genre of music in relation to gangs and, and violence well, hopefully you know hopefully i mean we shouldn't be embracing it I mean, personally i just don't think you should do anything that celebrates misogyny or drug dealing or violence i, I don't think we should celebrate anything that enforces those type of values or lack of values um so i don't know well, well you know as a culture we've got a lot of problems you know um across the board so i don't know if it'll change or not i can only tell you that uh you know it's not just murders it's not just violence it's other type of behavior i mean look at all the drug dealers of mm -hmm. um of people that are involved in that that subgroup of uh of music so you know do you think there's a problem with the glorification of it in the lyrics of the music itself as well? Yeah, there is. There's a there's a whole problem. It promotes a lifestyle that's antisocial, and that's never in anybody's best interest. Mm -hmm. I think it's very poignant. Uh, if you going back to the actual case, so obviously you're investigating the 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 Biggie case nine years after the fact, the Tupac case, almost a decade after the fact. Um. And I mean, Orlando Anderson was only interviewed once, I think, very briefly by police uh, the first time round. Why do you think there wasn't, or why do you think the police weren't successful, or certainly as successful as you were in, in cracking down on these cases? I think the passage of time helped us, you know, that a lot of time had gone by and, um, you know, a lot had changed in individual people's lives over that period of time. Um, but back when the homicide investigations were fresh, they couldn't make inroads because the people that knew things weren't willing to talk about it. The mm -hmm. cops clearly weren't there, so they have to rely on witnesses. And if witnesses aren't willing to sit down and tell you the truth and be willing to testify, it makes it very difficult to move forward with your case. Um, you know, there maybe could have been better. It maybe could have been a little bit more um, creative in the approaches. But that's just me being a Monday morning quarterback. Um, you know, I, there's a lot of unsolved crimes. In fact, in Los Angeles, I think the majority of murders go unsolved, and especially gang-related murders, um, because you just don't get cooperative witnesses. Do you think that stems from the lack of cooperation be just because they have to talk to the police? I mean, Suge Knight himself refused to cooperate uh, with Tupac's killing. So do you feel it's because of this kinds of representation of the police in these kind of subcultures yeah because that kind of subculture wants to take matters into their own hands they don't want to trust law enforcement to go out and, and, and 
thoroughly investigated. They don't want law enforcement involved because most of these guys are involved in criminal activity themselves. And so aligning themselves with law enforcement will both expose what they're doing and making them more vulnerable. And they don't also want to be identified as an informant or a snitch because of the price that comes with that on the streets that they live in. So it's dangerous to cooperate in that culture, that subculture. And it's also, um, you know, just not in anybody's best interest. So they try to handle these things on the street, which just leads to more and more conflict and in, 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 in killing. Do you think, obviously not the actions, but do you feel like the lack of cooperation can be maybe seen as justifiable or un- understandable by these people because of the kind of values they're taught and regarding the police forces in these areas? Yeah, I mean, it's understandable. And from their perspective, I would say it's justifiable. They don't want to expose themselves and, uh, you know, risk, take the risk that it would require to get involved in solving some of these crimes. So, you know, but it comes down to just more of a, you know, question about what are our responsibilities as people in our communities? Um, is our, do, should we take risks in order to do what's in the community's best interest? Should we take individual risks to do something that's in the interest of a broader group of people? And those are questions everyone has to ask themselves. For me, yeah, I, I think that you do owe it to your community to think that their, their uh, interests are more important than the individual interest. Do you feel it's uh, the, perhaps the lack of cooperation uh, and the, the gang culture has got better or worse in the Los Angeles area or in America as a whole, obviously you're local. It's, it's, it really depends. You'd have to, that's a complicated conversation because gang activity, you know, it evolves, you know, it used to be back in the day when they would fight with sticks to knives. And then it became the days where they would shoot each other with, you know, Saturday night specials. And then it became the days when they were using automatic weapons and doing drive-bys. Then there was the days where you identify yourself with a rag in your pocket. And, and then there's the days where you identified yourself through tattoos. And so it's a constantly changing and shifting thing. Um, but the violence and stuff that surrounds it doesn't change. It's still an antisocial behavior that affects a lot of innocent lives. So, you know, I don't so, know how to answer that question without going into a really broad so do you feel it's the uh the, the cosmetic side of of gang activity has changed rather than the sheer violence of it yeah probably that might be a good way to say it, the cosmetic uh, you know a, approach because they're always shifting they're trying to be more and more evasive from law enforcement as law enforcement also evolves and uses different technologies it makes it more difficult for them to um get away with their crimes and so they shift and change and, and try to figure out how to thwart their vulnerabilities. So it's always, you know, it's always shifting. You know, nowadays gangs, you know, drug gangs are using drones, you know, to determine whether or not law enforcement is entering in their zones and in, in, into their areas. You know, you would have never seen that before. You just had a kid that stood on the corner with a bike. And if you saw a cop roll by, he'd whistle to somebody down the street who would pass it on. Well, now things are becoming more the communications being more and more sophisticated so it's it's constantly changing do you think um, but, technology like that involved in in gang activity is going to 
completely alter the landscape of of the kind of police on gang uh, feud? No, I think you know law enforcement will always have some advantages, you know, because of the availability, you know, to get into people's technology and and, and, and and monitor them and track them and that type of thing. So we have that at our advantage. Um, but the advantage that the criminals have is that they don't have to play by any rules. You know, law enforcement has to adhere to, to rules. And if the other side of that component doesn't have to recognize or play by rules, then law enforcement's at a disadvantage. So it really just depends on what what we're talking about specifically. Mm -hmm. um, you uh, retired from the police force um, and moved into private investigating. What was your decision for leaving the police force after all those years? Uh, 25 years was just enough for me. You know, I was getting to a point where I was becoming a little bit disenchanted and I didn't want to be that old cop that sat at the desk and collected a and collected a paycheck I, just, yeah. I, I always resented that guy and i was feeling myself starting to get into that area of kind of complacency and just just didn't want to do it anymore and i'd done everything i wanted to do in law enforcement you know i never wanted to get into like supervision and administration and i always had really good investigative cases and great partners so i felt like i'd satisfied that chapter of my life so i was ready to go and um, so that's why I retired after 25 years. How are you finding uh, private investigating? What are the what are the stark differences between that and um, police work? Well, as, yeah, as a PI, you work for yourself, so you don't have to deal with management, bureaucracy, and that type of thing. You can pick and choose the cases that you that you want and approach them as you see fit. So there's the freedom that comes mm -hmm. with that. You don't have to get approval for things, uh, but you also don't have the resources that law enforcement does i can't do wiretaps as a law you know as a private investigator i can't do search warrants as a private investigator and those type of things so those things were really helpful in investigative you know inquiries so it's give and take but the freedom is well worth it i like working for myself and uh you know it's been 10 years i retired 10 years ago and i think i'm almost done i think i'm going to close this chapter too and move on to something else What's next for Greg Caden then? Yeah, I've, you know, after the series, after Unsolved, and I kind mm -hmm. of got exposed into, you know, learning about screenwriting and learning about production. I really like that. I really enjoy that. And um, currently I'm setting up, you know, a series of podcasts because I think I'd like to get into the, you know, the podcast groove that are mm -hmm. so popular right now. You get to work from home, pick, pick interesting topics. And so I think I'm going to, I think that's the next move. Ah, fantastic. Do you ever, looking back, do you ever miss, um, the, you know, those high-profile investigative works in the police force, or is that chapter well and truly closed? Yeah, that's well, and I still really enjoy investigations. You know, I think I'm kind of wired for that. I'm a little bit obsessive compulsive, and I think that's what you need to be to be a good investigator. You've got to really commit yourself and, and make certain sacrifices. Um, and I'm just wired that way. So I was good at being an investigator, and I still enjoy those type of challenges. Um, but I don't miss it at all as far as being on the police department. I've maintained, you know, friendships with the close friends that I had, you know, that I'd uh, made on the department. 
Mm-hmm. So we're all, so that didn't change. And, uh, but the environment of policing, yeah, I forgot about that the day I walked out the door and have never looked back with any regret. When, obviously you mentioned before about the fact that you would have loved to revisit or you would, would have loved to carry on investigating uh, the Biggie Smalls case and, and types on loose ends. Is there any part of you at all that still wants that or have you kind of put that to bed? I think I've put that to bed. I mean, what I would like to see happen, it's not, it's not likely going to happen, but what I'd be great to see happen is for Suge Knight to ultimately, you know, just you know, be willing to figure out how he can take responsibility for what he did, um, whatever that means, you know, whether it's, um, I think he owes Valletta Wallace that much. You know, but of course, that's just not going to be Suge Knight's nature is to put himself into more trouble than he's already in. But, you know, I'm just talking from a, you know, wishful thinking. Mm -hmm. I would love to see him take responsibility for what he did. And, um, but that's it. Prosecution wise, I don't think that uh, there's a practical prosecution on, on Puffy Combs and there probably shouldn't be. I mean, keep in mind, we're taking... Um, you know, the testimony, even though we believe it to be honest testimony of Keefe D. Um, but you've got to also understand the environment that Puffy Combs' involvement has to be understood for what it was. And that was a man who was extremely fearful of his life and made a bad decision to associate himself with some people that turned out to be killers. Mm-hmm. Do you... How did you feel when, when the, you were told that they were pulling the plug on tying up any loose ends with the uh, cases and not putting any more resources into the cases? Maybe, maybe pulling the plug is a bit of a cross. Yeah, I was a lot more upset about it back then than I am now, now yeah. that I've had time to kind of be practical about it and really evaluate that decision. Um, you know, I, I'm not emotionally upset about it. I kind of get it wish it would have been different but I you know I, I can see things through the eyes of the department more now than I could back at the time when I t- was told that they were shutting it down because I had invested so much time and energy all of us did our whole task force was you know committed to this thing and we had three years of hard work into it and to have it get shut down like that it was like a punch in the face um, but once the emotional component of that subsided then I realized okay it is what it is i kind of get it um and uh unfortunately it's just one of those situations where we're not going to get the resolution that that the public would like to see you feel like you did you have done enough work to not overthink it in terms of yeah yeah i absolutely i mean i've done i don't know there's nobody in just trying to be modest as possible. I mean, nobody in the entire world knows those cases better than I do. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I'm open-minded, um, but facts are what they are. Empirical evidence is what it is. And the conclusions that we drew were based on facts and evidence. So I'm, I'm super satisfied with the, um, the, the, the conclusions we've drawn, but I understand why the public is never going to be fully satisfied because nobody's going to prosecute it. Obviously, you say that your 
you're the expert on on this topic you know it more than anyone else what kind of obviously the media perpetrated a lot of uh quite baffling theories about who killed who and, and the instigations and stuff like that what were the the strangest kind of theories that you've felt floating about or that had no substance well ones that have no substance i mean when <laughs> biggie's case was on america's most wanted and people were calling and saying that they had committed the murder and then we go and find out that actually they were in a you know they were calling from a mental health facility where they were incarcerated at the time of the murder and so just weird stuff like that you know people call in and you know one person had called in and said hey you know oprah did it somebody else you know years later said no it was it was uh will smith because jada you know was having a relationship with tupac and so all just ridiculous stuff where people just throw speculation in there for whatever reason um the tupac alive theory is just ludicrous but a lot of people want to believe that's true um so you know you hear you heard all types of things um, but the practical ones the plausible ones were thoroughly investigated what did you think about the Shogunite knight uh theory then because that was essentially a theory that was believed by a lot of people i mean even uh the people close to death row said that that was what led animosity between snoop dogg and Shogunite knight and was kind of the reason that snoop started to leave the label yeah well you know when when these things take place, you can draw conclusions, but then with time and more information, you can change your opinions about things. But that's all these were, they're just people's opinions. You know, whether it's Snoop Dogg or anybody else, Frank Alexander, these people can have opinions, but they, that's all they are, because they can't back those opinions up with any kind of demonstrable evidence to support it to the point where it becomes factual. And so you just, you know, you have to accept the fact that people see things certain ways and have certain beliefs, but unless they're reinforced with evidence and facts, then that's all they are, just beliefs and opinions. They don't really hold any value insofar as finding the truth. And so, you know, um, those type of speculations, whether it's a bodyguard or whether it's uh, a fellow rapper, they're just opinions. Mm -hmm you know I, I think that's perfect now i'll finish up because i don't want to keep you too long and i'm very grateful that you've taken the time you know out of your day to speak to me about this um sure. but I, I want what i want to finish up on obviously you've had a kind of semi-dialogue with with uh sean combs in terms of that he outright denied your allegations against him um which you would expect uh if you were in a room with sean combs and it was just you and him and you sat down in front of him what would you say to him yeah if i were sitting down with sean combs the first thing i would say is like listen first of all i think i understand where you were at you know in this situation and uh and i i can understand it from your position uh, why you were so desperate, but ultimately I would probably ask him, you know, why don't you figure out a way to make this right with the public? I mean, Tupac Shakur was the most celebrated rap artist in the history of man. And his fans deserve 
everything that we can give them about what happened to you know to him so in his family of course even more so figure out a way to clean up your own skeletons you know let people have what they deserve and what they deserve is the truth so figure out how to way to get the truth out there but understand that that's a delicate thing to do because you're implicating yourself in a murder so or at least a solicitation for murder um so i would i would just probably let him know that i understand but that doesn't make it right what do you think he would say he would probably say what are you doing here and where's my lawyer <laughs> <laughs> greg thank you so much for coming to speak to me um <laughs> And, you know, I hope that the whole of California doesn't burn down and I hope everything goes yeah, well thanks. for you. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. yeah, all the best and thank you so much. Uh, You're welcome. Bye.